Welcome to episode 34 of That Classical Podcast. This time, Pachelbel and Handel. Hello. Hello. My name's Chris Bland. My name's Kelly Harlock. You're listening to episode 34 of That Classical Podcast. Welcome. Today, we're going to be talking about the two wonderful composers, Mm -hmm. Handel and Pachelbel. But before we get onto that, we've got an announcement. Yes, we do. Chris, drum roll, please. Ladies and gents, we've got a Patreon page. It's happened. The day has come. Um, For those that don't know what Patreon is, it's just a really easy way to support your favourite creators online. If we're one of your favourite creators, why not head to our page, Chris what can we find there? Well, so if you choose to support us on Patreon from as little as $1 a month, you get all kinds of exclusive bonuses and perks. Bonuses. So there's an exclusive patron-only episode of the show, yes. only available to those who support us on Patreon. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're giving you shout-outs on the show, on our website. Uh, you can get a special blooper reel from the episodes. We're showing you some behind-the-scenes videos mm-hmm. and even exclusive brand-new hot-off-the-presses merchandise. Badges! <laughs> Including badges. Uh, So there's all this really exciting stuff for you. Kelly, how do they find it? Where do they go? Uh, Guys, just go to www.patreon.com forward slash that classical podcast. And to be fair, we're going to just be like shoving it everywhere on all our social media. (laughs) So you will find it somehow. But now it's time to actually... Get on with the show. So as Chris mentioned, we're going to talk about Packlebell and Handel today. I am taking the Packlebell reins, uh, which means it's now time for... The 60-second show! That's right. It's now time for Kelly to tell us all about the life and times of Johann Packlebell in a minute or less. Kelly, are you ready? It's going to be dicey. <laughs> yeah, go on. All right. Three, two, one... Johann Packelbell was born August 1653 in Nuremberg, Germany. He was a musical boffin early on and started studying composition and organ from a young age. In 1669, he went to uni and was appointed organist at Church of St. Lorenz. But the pay was crap and he came from a poor family. Anyway, couldn't (laughs) afford his tuition costs and left uni after about a year. Studied a bit privately and then sacked it all in and went to Vienna. Got organist post at St. Stephen's Cathedral, 1673. Four years later, an East Court organist at Eisenach eventually became best buds with the Bach family. Packelbell left Eisenach after a year and became, you guessed it, the organist somewhere else. (laughs) Wrote a bunch of music for church services and started teaching. Married 1681. They had a kid, but Unfortunately, his wife and kid died of plague. He was sad for a bit, but not that long, and remarried a year later. Had a million children and everything was fine. 1690 took another post as, shocker, court organist at Stuttgart. And everything was hunky-dory, but then the French invaded two years later and he was like, see ya. More organing at Gotha from 1692, followed by more heavy-duty organing in Nuremberg in 1695. Stayed for 11 years, wrote his finest vocal music, and as expected, a metric buttload of stuff for organ. Died age 52 on March 3rd, 1706, and I have no idea how or why, so don't ask. Okay, so the main thing I'm getting from that is that he played the organ occasionally. Chris, he bloody loved the organ. He loved an organ or two. All right. Uh, and even though he had potentially the most utterly vanilla and beige life I've ever come across on that classical podcast. <laughs> Listeners, look, I'll, I'll level with you. When I look for a biography... I am looking for the dirt. I'm looking for the weird stuff, you know, the the strange things. 
There was nothing. Nothing, n- nothing embarrassing, nothing a bit naughty. He was oh, just man. a nice chap. Who played the organ quite a lot. Who played the organ in his spare time. All right, but that's fine. Not everyone needs to be a total wild card. Not everyone's a Mozart. <laughs> fine, I know. It's just very disappointing for me. Um, but funnily enough, he was actually a massive Baroque celebrity back in the day mm. and was like the daddy of German organ music. <laughs> okay. So he was a bit of a big dog. Right. Um, and even more interesting, or maybe the only interesting thing one might <laughs> say is that he taught uh, J.C. Bach, so Johann Christian Bach, who was um, Johann Sebastian Bach, who's probably the most famous yeah. Bach, I would say, yeah. um, his older brother. And then J.C. taught J.S. So through osmosis, you might say Packel Bell <laughs> taught J.S. Bach. Wow. And it's hey, a why, stretch. why was everyone called Johann? I don't so know. So when we talked about Johann Sebastian Bach... There were like five Johans in his family. I don't know. Packlebell also a Johan. Um, but enough. <laughs> enough of this. I have an incredibly important question for both our <laughs> listeners and for you, Chris. All right. What's your favourite one-hit wonder? <laughs> That's a good question. What is love? What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Incorrect. No? <laughs> That's not your favourite. And save goes for you at home if you didn't say <laughs> Packlebell's canon in D. Oh, I see. <laughs> because... This song, I, most of you will probably recognise it. If you don't know what it is right now, you will recognise it when I play it. Sure. It's a really famous piece. People just call it Packlebell's Canon. Yeah. All right? And you hear it all the time on the radio and at weddings. Mm. Um, but the thing is, like, you probably don't even hear all of it at weddings. You probably hear about like one minute. Bars, right, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> it's actually seven minutes long. And if it took the bride seven really? minutes, yeah, to walk down the aisle, that would be not enjoyable. Yeah, no, I mean, I hear it on all those sort of, like, relaxing classical compilations exactly. on YouTube, but never more than, like, the first right, 10 Right, because nobody actually knows how it goes no. after the first 30 seconds. But when we talk about Packlebell's canon, we're actually referring to his canon and Jugue for three violins and basso continuo, sometimes also just called Canon in D. Now, nobody seems to know when or why it was written, because clearly in the 1600s, everyone just used to record information on nearby potatoes and then eat (laughs) the potatoes. Uh, But we think it was written around 1680 to 1706, potentially for Johann Christian Bach's wedding, but also we literally have not a clue. Moving swiftly on. (laughs) Right, so it's written for three violins, but... He usually loved composing for the organ, so no one knows why he wrote it for three violins or why he wrote it. No, or when he wrote it, or Or what he was thinking or what he was doing. Do we know why it's so famous now? Yes, we do. And I'll tell you shortly. (laughs) Because the tale, the sad tale of of Johann Packelbell, we could call him Joe or we could call him Yo. (laughs) I'd rather call him Yo. The sad tale of Yo is that he was this great organ celebrity man, as I said, this massive Baroque master, and then he died, as people sadly do, (laughs) and literally... Everyone forgot about him. Oh, no. Everyone forgot about him till 1968 when the Jean-François Fayard Chamber Orchestra made a recording of his Canon and Jig. Okay. And the radio stations started playing it. And then the radio stations got inundated with requests for it oh. over and over again. So this was in, in the 60s, 70s. Yeah. And apparently just since then it's been used in loads of pop songs. And I'll talk about that a bit more later. Okay. Uh, films and obviously eight gazillion weddings every wedding ever the accurate statistic but what is a canon aside from 
a weapon that pirates use. <laughs> Please do tell me, what is a cannon and or a gique? I will tell you this for free. So a cannon is basically just what we'd call a polyphonic form. And what I mean by polyphonic is just, we have mentioned it before, mm. it's just uh, several lines of melody playing at the same time, kind of yeah. having a party. <laughs> so it's a polyphonic form in which a few instruments or voices play the same bit of music over and over, but they come in... And over and over. And over and over again. But they come in at different times, so they enter the piece in a sequence. And I guess the easiest way to show you what that is, it's like a campfire round. Do you know what I mean by that? Row, 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 you're about gently down the street. Row, 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 you're gently down the street. Yeah, there you go. Nailed it, nailed it. Science. So in Packlebell's original canon setup, there are three violins in canon, and then the basso continuo is off doing its own thing, Living independently, getting a tattoo. Sure. Um, and then the jig part just means a dancey bit, a bit like a Janet Jackson dance breakdown, but just at the end of the song with less twerking, basically. Um, and you know what? Perhaps you've heard it a thousand times before. Perhaps you've never heard it. Either way, here it is. And when you listen now, I've got a little task for you. See if you can think of any modern bands who took some shameless inspiration from it. Here we go. actually listening to that because you know you hear that piece a million times yeah, and you yeah, never yeah. really pay any attention to it no. but if you do actually listen to it it is quite a pretty piece it is really nice do you know what yeah. Packle Bell <laughs> wasn't crap like this is what I mean like so when I asked what your favourite one hit wonder was and when we think about what one hit wonders are we're kind of thinking oh well that band got lucky with that song, like the final countdown, or like Crush, or like Nineteen I Red Balloons. Usually, those those one songs are massive hits they are, because they're so right good. because they're great. But also, the person who made them is talented. Like sure. we do forget this. Like they're not just a joke. And Paco Bell really wasn't a one-hit wonder and you know I know that goes against what people assume Um, and I will obviously talk about shockingly another piece that he did very soon but actually more importantly the thing I wanted to address um, in the bit that we just heard you can't really there's no sort of canon going on in that bit which is ironic because that's all at the beginning with the violins coming in very slowly going over one another but we want to see the famous tune but what you did hear was the cello part, or I guess the part originally that was for the basso continuing, mm. going like this. Da, 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 oh da, like that. <laughs> I'm not going to do all of it. I'll be here all day. All right. But that chord pattern, mm. I don't know if you recognise it from anywhere. I do. Because you should. Because in fact, Pacobel's canon is like the godfather of about... I would say a good 70% of the world's modern, not even just pop, but just songs. Okay. AKA vis-a-vis, these ones. Basket Case, Green Day. Yeah. Yeah. Don't Look Back in Anger, Oasis. Yeah. I Should Be So Lucky, Kylie Minogue. Plus 
the others that would make up for the 70% of all modern music. But those chords, once you start listening out for them, you'll find they're just in Everywhere. everything. Yeah, so there's um, this Australian comedy music group called the Axis of Awesome. Yes. And they did this video that went viral a couple of years ago yeah. called like the Four Chords Mashup. Yeah. That it's those four repeating chords. Absolutely. And it fits with like every song every single ever song. written. And yeah, there's another comedy guy on YouTube. And we'll, we'll put all these links yeah, yeah, up yeah, on yeah. our like socials and stuff. But there's this other guy that says that he hates playing Packle Bell's Canon because he used to play it on the cello all the time in that same thing and that, then yeah. so it got ingrained in his head and now he hears it in every song and it's a very <laughs> similar thing but yeah you should definitely watch that but yeah do you know what the first thing I really just want you to do is listen to all of Packle Bell's Canon in D <laughs> like because I just don't think anyone actually has and listen to it I, don't, I really don't I don't think I had until about a week ago <laughs> the thing is listen to it with an open mind and actually Think about Packlebell as a talented musician as well. Right, you know, okay. it's not just a wedding song. It's actually just a bit of a banger and it's a really <laughs> clever piece as well. So just go away and, and let me know your thoughts right. on Packlebell's canon. That classical podcast. Next! I kid you not, we are going to talk about a second Packlebell piece, the difficult second album so you've tried to convince me that he's not a one-hit wonder is he in fact a two-hit wonder he's a, he's a two-hit wonder possibly Excellent. even a, like a four-hit wonder oh my god slow down potentially guys we're gonna talk about Paco Bell's Vespers has anyone ever talked about Paco Bell's Vespers <laughs> I have no idea I'm not sure Vespers. but yeah you, I mean you might remember me saying he wrote loads of stuff for church services because obviously yeah. he was an organist everywhere he went and uh, yeah so mainly he wrote obviously a lot of organ stuff yeah. but he also wrote lovely lovely choral pieces like towards the end of his life uh. and um, so I don't know if you guys remember we've talked about Vespers a couple of times before mm -hmm. they, they just generally refer to a set of evening prayers basically yeah. in church it can be catholic it can be protestant prayers and um he didn't write a full set of vespers he just kind of dabbled okay he dabbled he wrote a couple of magnificats a smattering of response settings um amongst other bits and bobs he just dabbled in vespers like no honestly i can give up any time i want <laughs> any time i want and he wrote this when he'd returned to nuremberg in the 1690s so he was mm -hmm. like getting on a bit and by that i mean he was like 40 but i guess that was the equivalent <laughs> of like an old man back in that day <laughs> And we're going to listen to one of the Magnificats. It's the Gloria movement of the Magnificat in C minor. And I think you're going to love it. All right. Yo, I see you. Right. I see you, Packlebell. Wasn't that just bloody lovely? Why don't we know about this? I know. <laughs> well, I'll tell you actually why. It's because those manuscripts of, of his Vespers, they were kind of passed around a few people over the centuries. And then they right. ended up in Oxford's Bodleian Library oh. from like the 70s. Okay. Someone found them in like 2009. Really? And then, uh, yeah, the Kingsingers did uh, a little album of them. 
That's her. And that's thing. it. Okay, <laughs> that's wow. the only time they've been heard uh, since like this late 1600s. Um, and I just think they're lovely. And you yeah. can, what I like about, especially that piece, it's the Gloria, it's not overcomplicated. And I think Baroque, mm. Baroque, like, religious music has this tendency to go into the like like loads of like just complicated vocal stuff and that was just chilled yeah. And I enjoyed it. Yeah. And I think that, so I read somewhere as well that Packle Bell was influenced by kind of Italian stars of stuff. So like Monteverdi. And you sort of, if you yeah. listen to a few more, you do hear more of that. Yeah. But I just thought it was a, a nice, pretty piece that wasn't canon, that showed <laughs> that Packle Bell could write for voices. He's a real life composer He's too. an actual person. Uh, and that was his difficult second album. But uh, it's, it's just really good. And I really suggest you go and listen to Tears Vespers. And frankly, I have trawled through his backlog of organ pieces to find you like the deep cuts of Bacal Bell and I will put everything on the Spotify playlist I found about 10 pieces lovely so like a bit more than maybe an album about an album maybe a large EP um, of Bacal Bell that I really think is worth listening to and you know what Maybe it won't change your life, but it will be a pleasant experience. No, let's make it a hashtag. Hashtag bring back Packle Bell. Bring <laughs> Packle Bell. Bad Classical Podcast. Right, so next up, it's my turn to talk about the composer George Frederick Handel, or, if you like, Georg Friedrich Händel. All right, mate, calm down. As he was known, because, mm. as I'll go on to explain briefly, uh, so he's German-born, but became a naturalised British citizen, so you can call him Händel or really? Handel or whatever you want. You Genuinely know. didn't know that. But this, of course, means that it's now my turn to do the old 60-second <laughs> show. It is. You can't escape. Are you ready? I'm super ready. Are you steady? Yes. Georg Friedrich Handel, born 1685, died 1759. He was born in Halle, Germany. His father wanted him to study law, but little Georgie loved music and would secretly practice. Uh, this led to him receiving lessons with the local church music director, uh, where he learned a bunch of instruments, including the oboe. Uh, when he was 18 years old, he moved to Hamburg, where all the opera was happening, and he got his first opera performed soon after, when he was about 20. After this, he goes to Italy for a while, learning from musicians all over the shop there. Goes back to Germany, where he becomes the Kapellmeister to the Elector of Hanover, who then, in 1714, becomes King George the first of UK and Ireland. Uh, oh my god. So then he moves to London, picks up some wealthy aristocratic English patrons, uh, and then really embeds himself in the musical and social life of England. Uh, he sets up an opera company in London, becomes well loved as a composer of mm. operas and oratorios, uh, in fact becomes such a big deal that he was asked to write the music for George II's coronation, uh, and then becomes a naturalised British citizen. 1737, age 52, has a stroke which stops him performing, but he actually recovers quite well. Ten seconds. Uh, and so he can keep composing. Uh, 1750, travelling, uh, gets into a serious carriage accident, gets blind in one <gasps> eye because of a rubbish surgeon, died in 1759, what? was buried in Westminster Abbey more than 3,000 mourners turned up oh my god you were exactly on a minute hello oh my days this is one of those stories about old fashioned medicine where they just make everything a thousand times worse isn't it so I oh my god so I got into a complete you know when you get into like a Wikipedia hole yes and so this surgeon literally sounds fascinating so there was this surgeon called John Taylor who was the most conceited arrogant man so he was British but called himself Chevalier Taylor okay Um, and so he was technically an eye surgeon and so he he operated on like celebrities and royals and was this massive self-promoter so he traveled around in a coach that was painted all over with eyes um 
but he was absolutely useless. So he, in (laughs) fact, he operated on J.S. Bach in 1750, blinded him. Then eight years later, so on Handel in 1758, he was operating on a cataract, also blinded Handel. So were the eyes on his carriage for everyone that he had blinded, (laughs) essentially? Well, no, so he went around being like, I am an eye surgeon to kings and the Pope and whatever. And both times after these surgeries, he was like, yeah, absolutely nailed it. Did a great job. Uh, And before each surgery he gave, he would give this like really long, odd self-promoting speech. Just being like, I'm the best surgeon in the world. Hear me roar. I'm the best. Despite, apparently, even by his own admission, blinding literally hundreds of patients over the course of his career. (laughs) Did they become blind during his speech because he didn't actually (laughs) operate on them in time? Yeah. No, but he was just this like complete charlatan that I wasn't expecting to find out. What a lad. (laughs) That I wasn't expecting to find out about when I was researching Handel. But yeah, just amazing. But anyway, so that's Handel. Yeah. So really, really loved by the British public. They really sort of took him to their breast Mm. as one of their own. And this is probably because he wrote loads of works for the public as well. It wasn't just for private patrons. So speaking of that, Mm. excellent segue, Chris. Well done. The first piece we're going to talk about by Mr. Handel Mm -hmm. is very well known. It's his Messiah. Yes! Do you know it? I do. So this was written in 1741 and is an oratorio. So an oratorio, just to refresh you guys, Mm. is basically a religious opera, but that's not staged, it's not performed with costumes and and all that jazz. And so it's probably most well known for having the Hallelujah Chorus in. Mm -hmm. It's performed by choral societies up and down the country. It's basically what Handel is most known for, is it? Like Packlebell's Canon, Handel's Messiah. Absolutely. I'd say so. But he wasn't quite such a non-one-hit wonder. Yeah, Handel had a few more. Two-hit wonder. (laughs) Arguably. (laughs) Yeah. So Handel's oratorios were pretty unique in that he was able to blend a load of different styles from across Europe Mm. because he obviously was German, had spent a bunch of time in Italy, now was in England. So he actually invented the English oratorio, um, which borrows a lot from the English choral tradition. Mm-hmm. So oratorio is by, uh, by let's say, Bach, mm-hmm. J.S. Bach, who's uh, his contemporary, wrote them in a sort of uh, more German style. So there's a lot to do with like fugue and counterpoint and stuff. Mm-hmm. Whereas the choruses that Handel wrote and the chorus that we're going to listen to are sort of less in that vein. Uh, they sort of follow along with the the orchestration, so the where the instruments mirror the voices. Okay. Uh, they're a little bit sort of more singable as well, which nice. is why they're so popular with I appreciate that. and so on. Yeah. Now, Messiah is a little bit different to other oratorios. So usually oratorios tell like a biblical story or something mm-hmm. like that. So he wrote other ones uh, like Saul telling the story of Saul in the Bible etc. But this is actually quite deep stuff, man. Yeah. It's a sort of uh, a reflection on the Christian idea of redemption and sort of focuses on the whole story of Jesus and goes through his whole life through crucifixion, resurrection, Mm. yada yada. So we have actually played some of the Messiah on the podcast before. Go back Mm. and check out our Baroque episode Mm -hmm. if you missed that. Uh, But now I'm going to play a different chorus from it, just because there's a lot of them. And I think they're all pretty great. Mm -hmm. Uh, So this one's called We All... No, All We Like Sheep, (laughs) Not We All Like Sheep, Have Gone Astray. And uh, there's some really cool word painting in this. So listen for when they're saying the word astray. Mm -hmm. All the voices are going astray. Clever handle. I see what you did there. It's very clever. Let's have a listen. Thank you. 
and so their, their voices are meant to be dancing around like sheep, basically. I was like, you could probably dance to that a little bit. Yeah, Does one not? dance to an oratorio? Discuss. Not, not, not typically, no. Okay. But, uh, yeah. okay so I wanted to go on to talk a bit now how... So this is my own personal theory on Handel. I've not oh, specifically read this anywhere. Mm. But my idea is that he was a bit of an operator, a bit of a mover and shaker. Oh, yeah. So throughout his entire life, he seemed to have like, always landed on his feet. Mm-hmm. So he went from being a totally non-musical background to, oh, all of a sudden he was discovered as being really good at music and then, oh, mm. he gets jobs here and, oh, mm. now he's in Italy and, oh, now he's in with the British royal family and mm. getting paid more and more every year. Mm. So I think he was just, like, either super lucky or just, like, quite good at getting his own way. Right, a bit of a mover and a shaker. Yeah, yeah. so uh, with oratorios, he really cemented a reputation as being, like, the guy to write them. Mm-hmm. And so operas and sort of fun music, inverted commas like that, weren't allowed to be performed in public in the UK during Lent. So it had to be sort of sacred entertainment instead. Huh. So he was like, yeah, right, I can, I can write some oratorios. But like a cheeky oratorio. No, like a proper, proper oh, right. oratorio. Fine. Like a, oh, a fine. <laughs> and it really tapped into the national consciousness at the time. So this was the time of the British Empire beginning to expand. Everyone felt like sort of the Brits are God's chosen people and so there was Very a lot good. of interest in like biblical themes and oh big overall stuff like that mm. who run the world Brits uh, <laughs> okay. so he tapped into that by doing lots of biblical stuff like that and being like mm. yeah you're really good British people I see also wrote loads of things in English because hiring English singers was much cheaper than hiring Italian singers to yeah. sing Italian operas. Right. I'm convinced this is all part of the greater thing. Yeah. Anyway, all my mad conspiracy theories aside, he was indisputably super popular mm. in Britain and still is. Mm. And in fact, he's the first composer ever to have been popular throughout their lifetime and then to have been continuously played since his lifetime. Right. So he wasn't necessarily like forgotten about after his death. No, like right. loads of other composers yeah. were and then they got <laughs> their pieces dug out again. Yeah, yeah. So if you don't already know the rest of uh, Handel's Messiah then you absolutely should Mm. and I urge you to go and listen to it at once in fact pause the podcast and go listen to it right now (laughs) don't pause it that classical podcast Kelly are you sitting down yes I'm about to hit you with some really shocking news okay I have chosen a piece that is from an opera Chris this is a special day. This is real life character development. What happened? Who are you? Tell me everything. What is it? So Handel, as well as being super famous for his oratorios, was also super famous for his operas. Right. Naturally. So what I'm going to play for you today is the opening aria from his opera Circe, which is about the Persian king Xerxes. And so this aria is pretty well known. So it's called Ombra Mai Fu, and it's from 1738 which is when the opera was written. So the opera itself actually wasn't very successful. It only got like five performances ever before Ooh, it was <laughs> hidden away. <laughs> yeah. uh, but this aria became sort of standalone famous in the 19th century mm-hmm. and sort of then re-entered public consciousness and people were like, oh, I quite, quite like this. Not bad. And it was in fact, the piece that we're about to listen to was in fact the first piece of music that was ever broadcast on the radio. So this was in oh December gosh. 1906. Uh, it was a Canadian inventor who made the first AM radio broadcast. Amazing. And yeah, the very first thing he played was a recording of this piece. Oh so my God. this is audio history. Not this recording of it, but this piece. Right. <laughs> so what we're going to do now is we're going to listen to the piece and then I'm going to let you into a little bit of opera intrigue of the time. Oh, baby.
Did you like it? <sighs> that was well nice, that was. Bit of Renee Fleming. Can't Absolutely. go wrong. Yeah, no. So he's just a really, really good vocal writer. Yeah, basically. that was that was stunning. That was lovely. He's really good at finding stuff that works for individual voices and mm. just making them sound beautiful. Uh, anyway, so just like in doing research, I found the whole like history and like political intrigue around opera in London at the time like really interesting. Tell me more. I'll set the scene. The year is seventeen eighteen. Yes. The place, Love London this. town. Oh my god, it's like immersive theatre, and I'm into it. <laughs> Uh, so a bunch of rich people uh, were like, hey, we can make some money off opera. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they formed uh, what is now known as the Royal Academy of Music, oh. uh, basically as an enterprise to put on operas oh. and engaged Handel as the first ever music director of it. And so, yeah, they got a bunch of singers from all over the place. Handel would write some operas for them. Casual. And now the arias within the operas, they sort of had to be allotted according to each singer's importance. Singers clearly have always been the same throughout the centuries. Right, yeah, I was going to say, that sounds very normal, yeah. So the singers were like, well, yeah, I want, I'm the most important. I want the... the most difficult one and actually this is where we get the phrase prima donna from which in Italian means first lady if you're the first lady in the opera cast and you're then the star and you have to have the most impressive (laughs) aria Uh, so around this time the two main sopranos that he'd hired to be part of this company uh, were two Italian singers called Francesca Cuzzoni and Faustina Bordoni and so, oh my God, it's so amazing. So Cuzzoni, she refused to sing an aria that Handel had written, given her in one of these operas, mm. because Handel had originally written it for someone else. Right. And she was like, Sloppy no, seconds. absolutely not. <laughs> yeah. I'm the star. You're not going to give me right. a runoff aria from someone else. Mm. But then Handel is allegedly supposed to have said, oh, madam, I know well that you are a real she-devil, but I hereby give you notice that I am Beelzebub, the chief of the devils. With this, he apparently grabbed her by the waist, and if she said any more, swore that he would fling her out of the window. (laughs) Oh my god! Handel sounds like a... Well, yeah, he took no nonsense, shall we say. But yeah, because... Expletive! Yeah. (laughs) Well, no, it's because... To be fair, they did push him really hard, all of the singers, all the time. Like, they were constantly asking for more money, and he was like, no. Gonna throw you out the window. <laughs> I am in I charge. will defenestrate you, young lady. That Great is a word. word. Great word. <laughs> Look it up. So, um, Cuzzoni and Bordoni were known as the rival queens. They were the two ones who sort of alternately got the main parts in all the shows. But this actually culminated in a real-life actual fight on stage between the two of them. Uh, So the year was 1727. They're on stage uh, in front of members of the royal family. (laughs) It's like a big deal. They end up, like, scrapping on stage. They have, like, rival factions of fans in the audience. Shut up. Who they all start brawling with each other. So the the performance had to be called off. And the whole rest of the opera season had to be called off. I know because it was so good, and yeah, everyone got very overexcited. So funny. So there's um, a contemporary account from well, they say it was written by a pamphleteer, basically the tabloids of the time, like the gutter press of the time. And so every time I like say something a bit louder, it's written in all caps, just to let you know from this quote. Yeah. So the devil to pay at St James's. Or a full and true account of a most <laughs> horrid and bloody battle between Madame Faustina and Madame Cuzzoni. Two of a trade seldom or ever agree. But who would have thought the infection should reach the haymarket and inspire two singing ladies to pull each other's quaffs? I shall not determine who is the aggressor, but take the sure side and wisely pronounce them both in fault. 
for it is certainly an apparent shame that two such well-bred ladies should call bitch and whore and should scold and fight like any Billingsgates. I'm really pleased that caps lock was a thing back in the day. <laughs> so, yeah, this was like a huge press sensation. That these two like superstars had come to blows. That is bloody brilliant. But it's also it's really funny to know that like really full of themselves, shall we say, singers have always existed and always will exist. Absolutely. That sort of comforts me in a way. It's quite nice to know. Agreed. Like, and <laughs> one day, hopefully, the same fight will break out between Beyonce and Mariah Carey on stage. Absolutely, except Beyonce would win. Yeah. Mariah's irrelevant Sorry, now. Mariah, Sorry, Mariah, Sorry, Mariah so fans. So that's, what I, that's my little story about opera at the time of Handel in London. But Handel, despite this minor hiccup, remained, as said, just a really, really popular writer and performer of operas. And this popularity is just sort of quite uniquely actually sort of just endured to this day. Mm. And he's still up there. And it's sort of, it's pretty much, you'd say, Handel and Bach, maybe Vivaldi. Mm -hmm. They sort of are the Baroque period for most people. Mm -hmm. They're the ones that sort Excuse of... me, what about Packle Bell? Hashtag bring Packle Bell. <laughs> Guys, get it trending. Come on, trending worldwide. What else should we listen to if we want to hear some Handel? Well, so as mentioned, you should listen to the rest of Messiah because mm -hmm. it's wonderful. Yeah. You should listen to his water music. That's really nice. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Does he also do music for the fireworks? Is that handle? Yes. That's yeah. also lovely. Yeah, that's him as well. Mm. Any of his operas, really. So Judas Caesar in Egypt is really nice. There's Saul that I mentioned before. Mm. Yeah, just have a little dig around. There's no shortage of stuff. Amazing. And there we have Handel. That classical podcast. So there we are, lads. That was our episode on Packlebell and Handel. Thank you so much for listening. Yeah, thanks to all of you who listen to and support the podcast. Just wanted to mention the Patreon again that we've just launched. Yes. Uh, so if you would like to head over to Patreon and support us in that way, you get all sorts of cool extra perks, bonuses, bonus episode, like Goodies. we said. Mm. Uh, but just to reiterate, the podcast will remain free forever mm. if you want to listen. If you just want to listen to it and not do anything else, that's absolutely fine. That is your we still prerogative. You. <laughs> um, and if you want to just talk to us without going to Patreon, uh, you can find us on all our usual social media channels, aka Twitter. We're at That Classical. Facebook, type us into Facebook, That Classical Podcast. Uh, you could go to our website, www.thatclassicalpodcast.com. You can even email us, thatclassicalemail at gmail.com. And we absolutely love hearing from you. We're also on Instagram if you want to see some cool snaps of what we get up to. <laughs> uh, we're at thatclassicalinsta. Absolutely. And then once you've done all of <laughs> yeah, that, all of um, if you haven't already, why not leave us a review on iTunes? Uh, it really helps us out and gets us up those charts. Yeah. Um, we love hearing all your feedback and reviews. But otherwise, we'll see you in the next episode. We'll see you then. Bye. Bye. Do, 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 do.